been out on the road Waiting for new episodes We've been thinking of you And just what you need Oh yeah Now that's the show Underway I guess we can call it a day You're all ready for The Bowfinger Show Welcome back to the Bowfinger Minute Podcast. Each week, Movies by Minutes hosts examine the 1999 Frank Oz-directed comedy, Bowfinger. One minute of screen time per episode. I'm your host this week, Professor Robert E.G. Black, and I'm known for a few things around Movies by Minutes circles, obsessing about locations and props, teaching the audience things about the themes and stories and structures and behind-the-scenes details, and dealing out philosophy as well. My latest shows are Minutia Ex Machina, The Groundhog Day Project Minute by Minute, and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Minute, the three of which cross over, and you can subscribe to them under one title as well, An Existential Trilogy. But you can go listen and subscribe to those later. You're here for more Bowfinger. But, two things. One, I don't know what's been said so far about this movie, about Hollywood, or about what Hollywood has to say about Hollywood because I'm writing, recording, and editing these episodes before the first episode is out there for consumption. Two, I've got a personal brand to uphold. And we're in minute 86, so either you're committed, or you should be committed. So hold on tight. Minute 86 begins with the tail end of a shot of Terry Stricter, then cuts to the movie premiere. And it ends with Bowfinger and Dave and Carol being led to their seats. This is Hollywood on Hollywood. In A Star is Born and Born Again, Variations on a Hollywood Archetype, James Stratton describes a Hollywood premiere. Quote, Searchlights sweep the wide night sky as vintage limousines deposit men in tuxedos and women in silver gowns on the carpeted threshold of a Chinese theater. A worried man with a cigar watches a screen test and decides to give that naive kid from the Midwest her career-making break. Or, less happily, a once-promising writer slouches through one studio gate after another in a desperate but unsuccessful search for either a loan or a little hack work. We know the moments. We know the movies. Since its inception as a sun-blessed outpost far from the East Coast Edison patent enforcers, Hollywood has been telling stories about itself. Primed by studio publicity departments and fan magazines such as Photoplay, Motion Picture, and Modern Screen, the public rapidly developed an insatiable interest in all things Hollywood. Just as the independent Moving Pictures Company had increased ticket sales by showcasing Florence Lawrence as a named featured actress and arguably the film industry's first movie star, the amorphous New California studios also found it profitable to give especially photogenic or talented performers a star build-up complete with fanciful biography, artfully composed fan photos, public appearances, and assuredly inside magazine profiles. Even when scandals involving sex, substance abuse, and murder snake their way into the headlines, moviegoers seem to become even more fascinated by Hollywood and its glamorous citizenry. Stars continued to fill theater seats, earned ever-larger salaries, and endorsed everything from cigarettes to playing cards. Making fortunes for the studios, 
they piled up huge personal fortunes as well. Magazines documented their lavish mansions, expensive cars, and exotic pets. Opulence and excess became signifiers of stardom. Always eager to extend its brand and market its opulent self as product, Hollywood inevitably embraced the novelty of completely self-referential films. Studios set stories in Hollywood and populated them with actual stars playing themselves. The boundary between real and fictional characters was blurred intentionally. End quote. Blurred lines in Bowfinger include references to Scientology, and Daisy being based a bit off of Anne Heche, with whom screenwriter and star Steve Martin had a relationship from 1994 to 1997, and whose next relationship was with, like Daisy's will be, one of the most powerful lesbians in Hollywood, Ellen DeGeneres. Even if Martin insists, for example, in an interview with David Wilde in Rolling Stones, 2nd September 1999, quote, Oh yeah, the last line about her meeting a lesbian is a joke, certainly inspired by her, but not her character. People took the last line and extrapolated backward. End quote. Plus, you've got the oft-used Wayne Manor from 1960's Batman standing in as Kit Ramsey's mansion, the Pacific Design Center standing in for the Mindhead headquarters, because using the Scientology building six miles east would have been too on the nose, and you've got former child star Gary Coleman off-camera working as a security guard on the film. Notably, Steve Martin tells Annie Nascenti in Scenario, 1999, quote, I didn't really think of it as a Hollywood satire. I just thought of the idea, and then everything else followed. I didn't have a big philosophical point to make. I was just writing what I thought was a funny idea, and all these viewpoints and opinions came into the script, because when you start thinking, okay, I need some characters in this movie, you realize they're Hollywood stereotypes, and yet they're real. They actually exist. The satiric or parody aspect of it really was tangential to what I wanted to make. End quote. Nascenti asks, For the character of Bowfinger, were you thinking of 50s filmmakers like Roger Corman or Ed Wood, or a contemporary independent director? And Martin says, quote, I didn't have any type in mind. I was really thinking about general desire, even to myself, when I first started out. I was thinking of when I was 19 years old and came to Hollywood and didn't know what to do. And I must interrupt there because Bowfinger's Big Thing was written just a couple years after Tim Burton's Ed Wood was released to critical acclaim and much of the energy of Robert K. Bowfinger's crew in Bowfinger, borrowing cars and cameras, taking advantage of Dave's day job, is the same as Edward D. Wood Jr.'s crew, taking advantage of Ed's day job and stealing, for the famous example, a giant fake octopus. But maybe it's a coincidence, the obvious way to demonstrate guerrilla filmmaking. Back to Martin's answer. The moment in the movie that's the closest to my actual experience is when Heather Graham gets off the bus and says, Where do I go to be an actress? And then she's walking down a street and she sees a sign that says auditions. That's literally the way I lived for a long, long time. Anything that said showbiz on it, you were there. Any person who said, Yeah, I'm in the business, they became your guru. End quote. And asked later about writing characters that are in Hollywood, Martin explains, Quote, it's really osmosis, where those characters came from. It's my whole life in Hollywood, from beginning till now. For any of those characters, I didn't have one personality in mind, but I felt like I've seen them in some way, or known them, or known of them. I think your mind assembles stories into one type of character. You hear a story here, a story there, and your mind is just subscribing them all to one type of person. Then when you start writing, they come together. End quote.
from the script. Exterior, night, movie theater. Tight shot on a marquee. Kit Ramsey in chubby rain. Camera pans down to see a premiere in progress. Lots of press lined up along the sidewalk laid with a red carpet. The flashbulbs pop as celebs and near-celebs enter. Bowfinger's Taddy Van pulls up and Bowfinger, Dave, Carol, Afram, Jiff, and Clark pop out. They look in amazement at the array of showbiz. They love it. They walk down the aisle. All the photography stops, of course. Bowfinger, to Dave. I wonder what happened to Daisy. Dave, haven't seen her. Bowfinger stops at an E-channel video camera. Bowfinger, into camera. The art of film has certainly been lost by Hollywood. Only the independence, the true filmmaker, can hope to achieve. Interviewer. We're not rolling, and we won't be either. Bowfinger, unabashed, moves to the next camera. The art of film has certainly been lost by Hollywood. Only the independents, the true filmmakers, can hope to achieve. Interior, night, movie theater lobby. Throngs are packed in the lobby, a rainbow of Hollywood cliches. We see lots of tight-fitting, low-cut black dresses as canapes whiz by and hear snippets of conversation about deals, etc. It's Bowfinger's dream. He's talking to everyone. Bowfinger. 50% of the net options structured with a back end, keeping boring sales for the... Suddenly there's commotion. Kit Ramsey is arriving. He enters the lobby with Daisy on his arm. Bowfinger, Afram, Jeff, and Clark, i.e. Slater in the film, look at her with broken hearts. Carol looks on. Kit and Daisy pass by. Daisy sees them. Oh, you guys. Runs to them. I love you guys. All the guys. Uh-huh. Daisy. Have you met Kit? Kit, I want you to meet the director and your co-stars and the writer. Kit. Cool. Bowfinger. I love directing you. You were a dream. Carol. I have never enjoyed working with someone more. You're a true professional in every sense of the word including the new sense where you never actually meet them. Clark, I loved our scenes together. Kit, cool, to Bowfinger. Who are you again? Bowfinger, I'm the director. Kit, cool. And then we're inside the theater. In the film, of course, this moment is both more triumphant, glossing over passing dialogue in the midst of the glitz and glamour, and sure, Daisy arrives on the arm of Kit Ramsey and doesn't seem to even notice Bowfinger at all but it's all bright and shiny and it feels like a positive end to our story. Just three seconds into minute 86, we cut to the marquee at the premiere of Chubby Rain. We're at the western corner of the intersection of Broxton and Weyburn in Westwood, the Regency Village Theater, previously known as The Fox, where many a premiere has happened. Just across the street is The Bruin, which just a few years ago featured in Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And just down the street is the landmark Westwood where I've been more times. I've only ever been to the Fox to see the Thin Red Line because there are so many movie theaters around L.A. that aren't as far from where I used to live in Pasadena or live now in Glendale. That was in December 1998, probably somewhere between this filming for Bowfinger and Bowfinger's own premiere in August 99, which was not at the Fox, but rather the Universal Amphitheater a dozen miles east. But I have been to the landmark Westwood at least a few times for indie films, and specifically twice to see The Room, because I love bad movies and I was in pre-production on The Room Minute, and one aspect of that show was detailing the things that happen at the midnight screenings. But this is The Fox.
neon lit around the marquee, a spotlight shining up at the 170-foot tower that rises over the theater. A rather cheap-looking poster image for Chubby Rain is mounted over either side of the marquee, and one, it actually covers the part of the sign that would label the theater as the fox, and two, it's actually a little crooked. But if I hadn't paused this moment, I'm not sure I would have noticed. As for that poster image, we've got old-school flying saucers flying over a pair of cars, Kit's Mercedes on the left and the Buick Riviera on the right, the two cars from chasing. Oversized raindrops falling from the three flying saucers, each raindrop with Kit's face in it, including one large central raindrop centered between Kit Ramsey in yellow block letters above and Chubby Rain in white block letters below. Hanging beneath the marquee are numerous cut-out raindrops of the same, and I imagine ushers of the theater taking some of those home later, as we occasionally did with decorations back when I worked at a movie theater in the 90s. The camera pulls back to reveal the crowd below, including a good deal of press. This red carpet premiere is a big deal. Second 15, a Rolls-Royce silver cloud arriving, a crowd of onlookers across the intersection. Before the cars come to a complete stop, Freddy is opening the opposite front door to get out, and Kit is opening the nearer back door as well. Freddy runs around the front of the car as Kit exits. Cut to... Afram and Slater and Bowfinger and Claire and Dave looking on amidst the crowd near the theater doors. Interesting details. It's night, but Slater has on dark glasses. Claire has her hands on Bowfinger's arm, his date for the premiere. And Afram is holding his pass to the screening in both hands, which the last one is such a tiny detail and I love it. He's the screenwriter, even if he also appears as one of the cops within Chubby Rain so he probably wouldn't assume anyone at the premiere would recognize him on site. Additionally, one of the invitation props can be found on yourprops.com, so you've got some extra detail. There are three production logos at the bottom, Bowfinger International, Mindhead, and Universal. The premiere is at the Westwood Theater in Universe at 1620 Broxton, which is an apartment building's address several blocks away in reality, and it is scheduled for 7.30 p.m. July 10th and that means it should not be this dark out. Also, I don't think they ever say Daisy's last name in the film, but apparently it's Wallenweger, which I imagine she will be changing to something simpler as soon as possible if she wants to make it as a star. Or is it a Renee Zellweger reference? Huh. Back to the rules. Kit turns back to the car as, surprise, surprise, Daisy gets out of the car. Freddy gets to the door and closes it behind Kit and Daisy as they head toward camera onto the red carpet. Cut to the reaction shot from Bowfinger and his merry band. Disappointment, dismay, but I doubt they're surprised. Second 30, we're inside the auditorium as Kit and Daisy are led down the aisle to their seats. This is inside the fox, by the way. Behind Kit and Daisy are Freddy and Kit's agent. Behind them are Carol and Bowfinger. Daisy and Kit arrive at their seats. Freddy and Kit's agent enter the row behind them. Then, before Carol or Bowfinger can even try to sit nearby, an usher steps between them and camera. Usher, sir. And he turns to lead them to their seats. Behind them, Dave looks confused. Carol and Bowfinger can barely hide their disappointment. This way. As the usher heads out of frame, past camera to the right, 
Carol and Bowfinger both glance back to where Daisy and Kit have disappeared out of frame to the left, but they keep walking. Carol holds her head high and feigns a cheery smile. Second 46, reverse, following them from behind as they approach the front of the auditorium. All the way to the front, and to the left. Front row, far left, the usher stops. Bowfinger looks back one more time to the much better seats reserved for Kit and Daisy, but then he and Carol, and Dave behind them, proceed to their seats. For some reason, this premiere has two searchlights beaming around the inside of the auditorium instead of up into the sky outside. That's a choice. As they sit down, we cut to a POV shot from behind Dave as he sits in the seat farthest left. These are not good seats. An indignity surely arranged by Terry Stricter. But that's a wrap on Minute 86 of Bowfinger. And cut. Perfect. Printed. Let's move on. I've been your host for this minute, Professor Robert E.G. Black. If you want to hear more from me while you're waiting for tomorrow's episode, you can check out any of my previous Movies by Minutes podcast. Michael Myers Minute, Dave Made a Minute, The Room Minute, Annihilation Minute, Mandy Sucks Minute, Cock and Bull Minute, Two Minutes About Time, Pump Up the Minute, Five Minute Arrival, or the currently running Minutia Ex Machina, The Groundhog Day Project Minute by Minute, and The Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Minute. You can find any of those on your usual podcatchers, and you can find links to those and more at lemmingdrops.com. You can find the Bowfinger Minute podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play, or at the main site, bowfingerminute.com. If you've got the time, please like, subscribe, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Follow the show on Facebook at Welcome to Mindhead, the Bowfinger Minute Listener Center, and on Twitter at Bowfinger Minute. Join me here next time on the Bowfinger Minute. In the meantime, keep it together, keep it together, keep it together. Sure.